It's not, you know what, God's gonna give me health, wealth, and happiness, everything's gonna work out just fine. It's not that. It's simply an observation of who God is. God is sovereign, God is in control, and so I can put my trust in Him. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb, and we're in our current series in the book of Daniel, where we're asking, how can God's people not only survive, but thrive in Babylon? For resources and information about this teaching series, or to learn about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Eric Little whose story was featured in that movie, Chariots of Fire, was a runner and also a committed Christian. One of the things I love that he says is, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. In 1928, he was recruited to run in the Olympic Games in Paris, and by the time he got to Paris, uh, running for Great Britain, he discovered that the 100-meter heats were scheduled to be run on Sundays. And it was his firm conviction that you ought not run on the Lord's day or compete or work or any such thing. And so he had to share to his own team, I cannot run in the 100 meter dash. And for just a few days, he was raked over the coals. He was all over the newspapers in Great Britain uh, for the fact that he was unwilling to run for his fellow countrymen for his fellow athletes, for his coaches, for his friends. And so in a last-ditch effort, they went to the Olympic Committee and they asked if the heats could be changed. And they said, no, we're not going to budge on this. And so finally they said, well, if you can't run in the 100 meters, I, I guess, why don't you run in the 400-meter dash? And if you know anything about running, training for the 100 and the 400, you train for those things completely differently. And so he ran in the 400 meter dash. And not only did he run, but he won. And not only did he win, but he set an Olympic record for the 400 meter dash. And afterwards when he was interviewed, he was recorded saying this, those who honor God, he will honor. Desmond Doss, whose story was featured in the movie Hacksaw Ridge, was drafted in the US Army during World War II, but he was also a pacifist, and it was his, confirm, his firm conviction that you could not take life, and you could not indeed even carry a gun. But he loved his country, and he wanted to serve his country, and so he chose to serve as a field medic. But during his training, he endured such harsh ridicule and torment from his own fellow soldiers because who in their right mind wants someone to watch their six if they aren't carrying a gun? And so these were some of the most difficult years of his life. But on one particular day, when he was serving as a field medic in Okinawa, the Japanese pinned his entire unit down when he was at the top of the face of a cliff. They were trying to make advances toward the enemy, but almost all of them were gunned down. And because of the cliff, there was no way for medics to get up. And to make matters worse, most of his unit were not killed, they were injured. But Doss knew that if they did not receive help soon, all of them would die. And so there he stood. He said, what do I do? He prayed, Lord, give me strength. 
and he crawled up against enemy lines and dragged back injured members of his unit. And then he jerry-rigged out of ropes and other units uh, trying to draw people down this mountain. And then he went after another one and another one and another one. And when he finished collecting all the men from his unit, he then went after injured Japanese soldiers as well and brought them down to safety so that they could be healed. A little while later, he was brought before the president, President Truman. And Truman declared him one of the most courageous soldiers in World War II. And he awarded him in such a way that no soldier had ever been awarded before and has never been awarded since. He gave a man the Distinguished Medal of Honor, a man who had never carried a gun. I share these two stories with you this morning because one of the things that we know about humanity is some of the best things in the world are only accomplished through a unique blend of incredible humility, incredible conviction, and godly courage. And these three things together, I just want to refer to it as humble courage. And we're going to see in our story this morning that humble courage is a vital component of what it looks like to live in Babylon, to survive in Babylon, but not only that, to thrive in Babylon. And for the sake of our guests, every time we talk about Babylon in the context of this book, we're talking about any kingdom, any nation, any power, and indeed any heart that is bent away from God, that does not recognize the sovereign plan of God. It does not recognize his power, his rule, his authority, his kingship over the world that he has made, and their heart is bent away from him. And so we see that Babylon exists today in our own hearts, in our nations, and indeed in our world. So what does it look like for us to not only survive, but to thrive in the midst of our Babylon today? And so as we look at these stories, the story we're going to look at today in Daniel chapter 3, I encourage you, grab your Bible if you have one, start looking for Daniel chapter 3. The story that we are going to look at is a very familiar one. I would say this is one of the most famous stories in Scripture. Three men refused to bow down to an idol made of gold. And because of that, King Nebuchadnezzar throws them into a fire, but they remain unburned. They come out, that not even a hair from their head is singed, and that's the end of the story. Boom, everything works out. But if we just look at that element of the story, the great heroics and the courage of these three teenagers, we might miss the incredible message that points to the very reasons why they did that at all. And so that's what I want us to look at this morning when we open up scripture together, is what were their convictions? What was the reason why they made this decision that they did? And what sustained them in order to make such a radical decision. So this is the way I put it in your note sheet. This is the fuel that sustains Christian courage. It's going to take equal parts humility, conviction, and hope. Equal parts humility, conviction, and hope. And I hope you know by now that every single time we talk about hope from this place, it's not wishful thinking. 
right? Hope is not wishful thinking. It is a sure and certain knowledge of things that have not yet come to pass. That God is faithful, he is on his throne, and that he is victorious. And ultimately, if we are attached at the hip with Jesus, his victory is also our victory, and we have that hope. So the hope of a Christian is kind of like watching your favorite sports show on a rerun. You already know how it ends. You already know that your team is victorious. So even if your team is down at the bottom of the ninth, or the end of the third period, or the end of the fourth quarter. Pick your sport. If your team is down, even they're far behind, but you know the final score, you're not fretting. You're not worried about it. In fact, you're reveling in it. You're like, you don't even know what's coming. We're about to win. We're about to take over. We're so excited about this. And we should have the same sort of hope when we walk with Jesus, because we know the final score. Humility, conviction, and hope. These are the prerequisites for those of us who want to walk with Jesus and to not only survive, but to thrive while living in Babylon. So let's take a look at our Bibles. Daniel chapter 3, starting at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. A cubit is a foot and a half, so 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. And set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincials, officers, to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So... The satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Call that redundant. And they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must bow down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, we have to remember what we learned last week which makes this story so humorous in one sense and so incredibly sad in another. We remember the substance of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, right? A gigant, there was a gigantic statue in his dream, and the head was made of what? Help me out. What was the head made of? Gold. Oh, that's interesting. And what did the golden head represent? It represented King Nebuchadnezzar himself. I'm so excited. I'm knocking off this piece. He, he, the king of Nebuchadnezzar was the golden head. Babylon, the nation, the empire of Babylon was that head. And then we saw a chest of silver, and that represented the Medes and the Persians, and we're going to hear about them in a couple of weeks with King Darius. And then we had um, the belly, which was made of bronze, and that is Alexander the Great and the Greeks. And then we had legs, which were made of iron, and that is the powerful empire of Rome, which sustained itself for almost 2,000 years in the east. And then we had the toes, which were a mixture of clay and iron, some nations strong, some nations weak, representing the rising and the falling of other nations all the way up to today. 
But then what did we see? A tiny little rock, a piece of granite stone, starts blazing toward this golden image. And it shatters it into smithereens, into a billion little pieces. And it falls down on the floor, and it is like the threshing floor, and it all just blows away like chaff. And then this tiny little rock, it grows and grows and grows and expands until it is the size of an enormous mountain that covers the face of the earth. And what is that? We see that this is Jesus. So I encouraged you last week to write down Matthew chapter 13, in which Jesus reveals to us that everything we learned last week is ultimately pointing to him and to his kingdom. When he says that my kingdom will start small, like a mustard seed, but there it will grow and grow and grow until it covers the face of the whole earth. So what's the plain thing that we saw last week? It's this. All human kingdoms powers and plans will come to an end, but the kingdom of God will stand forever. That's the vision that Daniel receives from God and he gives to King Nebuchadnezzar. And that's a rude awakening for us because we're kind of like a fish in water that says wetness, what's that? The world that we live in today says that you are the center of the universe that the whole world revolves around you and that it is good and right and noble and true for you to pursue all of your plans because you are the king and you are the Lord of your universe. And so in many ways, we're just like King Nebuchadnezzar. No, we don't erect big 90-foot huge statues made of gold. We can't afford it. We, just, we don't do those things. But we do it in our hearts. We do it in our hearts. Because of our sin nature, the traitor within, we do the same things. And then we also saw something of ourselves in King Nebuchadnezzar. He is the richest, most powerful, most influential person in the entire world. The top of the ladder, the top of the food chain. And then we still saw last week, he was deeply insecure. Why? Because he discovered something that all of us try to forget. What is that? That everything we have and everything we are will pass away. All of it will pass away. We are like that chaff on the threshing floor that blows away. Here today, gone tomorrow, like a vapor, like a mist, like the morning dew, all of our lives are just like that. So we want to hang on. We want to do everything in our power, just like King Nebuchadnezzar, to control our lives. So after receiving this incredible vision, here's how the chapter ended last week. Nebuchadnezzar says these words. Surely, Daniel, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. And this is incredible. Like in, in one sense, we see a man who only a couple of years earlier was the one who ransacked the temple and exiled the Jews and brought them back to Babylon. But now we see that even the uh, Babylonian god Marduk has competition in the mind and the inner world of Nebuchadnezzar. God's moving. God's moving in his heart. But then a moment later, 
A moment later, this is the irony, here's what we have to see. A moment later, the beginning of chapter three, he erects a huge image made of gold, which represents him from head to toe, and it's his great defiance testimony toward God. It's like the ultimate statement of, God, I see your sovereignty, and I raise you mine. Bold. I see your sovereignty, God, and I raise you my plan. And I hope you brought your mirror Bibles for this this morning. I I long for you to see That in this story, even though our temptation might be to say, we're just like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But what the author wants to reveal to us is that because of our sin nature, the traitor within, we have much more in common with Nebuchadnezzar. And to point to this principle, I want to share a quote with you. This is from the Puritan by the name of John Owens, and he writes this. He says, As a traveler, in his way meeting with a violent storm of thunder and rain, immediately turns out of his way to some house or some tree for shelter. But as soon as the storm is over, he returns to his way and progress once again. So it is with humans in bondage to sin. They are in a course of pursuing their lusts. The law meets them in a storm of thunder and lightning from heaven which terrifies and hinders them in their way. This turns them, for a season, off their course. And they will run to prayer. They will temporarily amend their life for shelter. But is their course stopped? Are their principles altered? Not at all. So soon as the storm is over, they begin to wear out that sense and the terror that was upon them and they return to their former course in their service of sin yet again. Isn't that true of us? Have you had moments like this in your own life? We see that through Nebuchadnezzar, this this is the essence of, of what we refer to as Christian atheism, to live as though God exists and he is sovereign over all things, to believe those things intellectually, but then our hands and our feet and our mouth act as though none of that is true. To act as though none of that is true. And I hope you know by now that God will not play those games with his creation God will not share the throne room of your heart with any other competitors. So I put it this way in your note sheet regarding our human condition. We often give God a nod, but we refuse to give him our complete worship. Or the word that we've been learning over the course of the last couple of months in our Exodus series and up to now, we won't give him our avodah our worship, our service, our lives. So let me show you how the author points this out. Look again at verse four, if you have your Bibles with you. It says, then the herald loudly proclaimed, and this is important, nations and peoples of every language. Do you see that? That's really important because every single time that sentence is used in scripture, it is a point of saying something epic is about to occur. Take note, something is about to happen. The last time we heard those words, 
nations and peoples of every language was actually in exactly the same place in Genesis chapter 11 during the building of the Tower of Babel. When every nation, every tribe, every generation, all peoples from all the earth, from every language, they all gathered together in one place and they said, let's make a name for ourselves. In defiance against God, it was there, uh, it was the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar was doing with his 90-foot uh, building of himself, right? They're doing exactly the same thing. They are seeking to defy God. And then we see it again in this story. We hear more about it in the prophets and the gospels and the epistles. And then once again, this string goes all the way to the book of Revelation. And we see it once again when John receives this incredible vision from God. A great throng of people, innumerable, from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, and all people on earth. And then they gathered around the throne and they said, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and praise. And so this is the string that we have to see from Genesis to Revelation. It is once again being revealed right here in this chapter. Nebuchadnezzar, he wants to bring all the nations together for what purpose? To worship God? No. To worship and to glorify his greatness and himself. And just so you don't miss the symbolism, that word worship occurs 11 times in this one chapter alone. The author Daniel doesn't want you to miss the symbolism that he's trying to outline for us that this is all about worship. It's all about avodah. And so the battle lines have been drawn. What happens next? Verse 7. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell, fell down, and they worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then we learn that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they do not bow down. Some magicians see this. They go before the king. Let's pick up here in verse 12. The magicians say to Nebuchadnezzar, there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. So we're not exactly sure how many people are there that day, but most scholars are willing to assume at least one million people are in the city square in Babylon. A million so sometimes we might have this idea in our head that there's like a couple thousand so that when everyone bows down, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they stick out like a sore thumb. But if there's a million, then they might be all the way in the back and not many people are recognizing them and that's consistent with the story. Why? Because the magicians have to make the long trek up and to announce to the king that there's a couple guys way in the back who aren't bowing down. Right? So maybe they're like a half kilometer away. And they make the trek up, they tattletale on them, they say they're not bowing down, and there they are, somewhere in the back, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they're standing, boldly, maybe a little bit afraid, while everyone else around them is bowing down. What an incredible image. 
Look at verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kind of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. He gives them a second chance. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? I love that for what's about to happen. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this manner. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Wow. There is so much, so, so much in these few short verses. The first thing I want you to note is the incredible humility of these teenagers. Look at the honor that they ascribe to this king, even though his conduct is unworthy of that honor. They're also filled with incredible respect. And then, in answer to his question as to what God or gods would be able to rescue them from the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar, they say something incredible. Look again, it says this. The God of Israel is able to deliver us from your hand, but even if he doesn't. Incredible. Incredible, even if he doesn't. They make no presumptions upon God, even when their life is on the line. And once again, just like we saw with Daniel last week, we see that these three teenagers are filled with incredible peace. They have so much peace and humility and conviction and hope. But I also need to give just a little bit of a warning here. See, most of us, when, when we read stories in the Bible and we see a protagonist and an antagonist, a, a good guy and a bad guy, instantly we want to associate with the good guy in the story, right? That, that's who we want to ultimately identify with. Yet if we're honest, we should primarily identify with the condition of this king and to see that our hearts are built very much like his. See, the problem with our sinful nature is that our hearts are much like his. That we might not create these huge images made of gold, but really the issue in our hearts is self-adulation, ego, pride. And if it's not that, then why did Jesus come? I hope you see that we are in this story too. And so here's the principle I shared with you already. I want you to be thinking about this again. We often give God a nod without giving him our full and complete worship. And that's the reason why Nebuchadnezzar responds the way that he does. See, he's not worried about the fact that these three teenagers worship the God of Israel. They already, he already knows that. It's the fact that he won't also worship his gods and him. They live in a polytheistic culture. 
Just like in our reading of Exodus in Egypt, the same thing in Babylon, worship whatever gods you want, just worship ours too. There needs to be a full-on culture of acceptance. And, and we have that today as well. The risks are not as high. It's not bow down and worship or die. But there is a command for us to accept all and to be with all. Let me give you one example of this. It's about 10 years old, but this comes from Oprah Winfrey. She said this on her show. You could probably find this on uh, YouTube somewhere. She says this. There are certainly many more paths to God other than Christianity. I'm a free-thinking Christian who believes in my way, but with six billion people here on the planet, it can't possibly be the only way. One of the mistakes that human beings make is in saying that there's one way to live, and we don't accept that there are diverse ways for being, millions of ways, many paths to what you might call God. There can't be only one way. There couldn't possibly be. And the social pressure to believe this is incredible. It's incredible. In Neb's day, it was obvious, right? Bow down or die. But in our day, it's much more subtle and nuanced. But in both instances, no matter what environment we find ourselves in, we cannot fall into the two twin pitfalls to assimilate or to culturally separate. And the reason why I keep sharing that with you is because next week, Lord willing, we are going to see what is my favorite chapter in all of scripture. I can't wait to get to next week with you. Spoiler alert, King Nebuchadnezzar experiences conversion. I know it's hard to see that now, but that's where we're going next week. Or here's another more visceral way of putting this. For those of us who are walking with Jesus, Neb's going to be with you in glory. Isn't that weird to think about? Neb is going to heaven to experience the full kingdom of God for the rest of eternity because of what? The faithfulness of these four teenagers. The faithfulness of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 1, 2, and 3, which ultimately leads to his conversion in chapter 4. But if we fall into these twin pitfalls, we might feel self-righteous, or we might feel culturally accommodated, but we will lose our witness in a world that desperately needs to hear the gospel of Jesus. So here's the principle I want to lay out before you. If God isn't Lord of all, then he isn't your Lord at all. You are either fully surrendered to him, or you are living in Babylon. Now that's exclusive. That is exclusive. But it's exclusive in the same way that we might say doctors or engineers or airline pilots are exclusive. We've never heard an airline pilot say, you know what, I'm just not all too interested in landing down those narrow-minded landing pads that control towers control. You know what I want to do today? Let's just go land in a parking lot at Walmart. Why don't we do that? No, we did that last week. We should go land in the river over there. Yeah, that's what we should do. Uh, we should just land wherever we want. Good thing that we're free-minded thinking people and we're not like those narrow-minded pilots who just go down the straight and narrow path. I hope you're picking up my sarcasm. But that's ultimately what we're dealing with. So let me ask you a question. 
Where is your faith today? Are you willing to seriously question where your faith is at today? Is God God? If you are still questioning the answer to that question, lean in, ask good questions. I would love to walk with you in that journey. Come find me after the service. We'll have a conversation and we'll continue on from there. And if you do believe that God is God, then question your actions. Are they consistent with your faith? Do you not only believe those things, but do you behave in such a way that your faith is fueling your life? Ask the questions. Look again at the response of these teenagers. They essentially say, I believe that God can, I expect that he will, but I will continue to trust in him even if he doesn't. See, the whole world, when they see these three teenagers, they're looking at how small and puny and insignificant these three boys are in comparison to King Nebuchadnezzar. But what the teenagers see is just how small and puny and insignificant King Nebuchadnezzar is in comparison to their God. And that's what fuels them. That's what drives them to live the way that they live because they know the power of God. They know that he is sovereign over all things and that he is in full control. That's what we see with David before he went toward Goliath. It's what we see with, uh, with Esther before she puts her life on the line. It's what we see with Desmond Doss and with Eric Little and with Daniel, with all of these faithful, God-fearing people. What's that song that we learned from VeggieTales? God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than Godzilla or the monsters on TV. God is bigger than the boogeyman, and he's watching out for you and me. Listen, look at this. God is bigger. He's bigger. And so the question we have to ask is, do we believe that? That he is bigger than our circumstances? That he's bigger than our problems? That he's bigger than the cancer diagnosis? That he's bigger than the lost job? That he's bigger than the dying and the decay that we experience rapidly in our life as days pass us? He's bigger than death? Do we believe that he is bigger than those things? So we have to see the nuance here. Christianity is not utopianism. It's not, you know what, God's going to give me health, wealth, and happiness. Everything's going to work out just fine. It's not that. It's simply an observation of who God is. God is sovereign. God is in control. And so I can put my trust in him. What's the thing that we say around here a lot? We say the pattern of our heart needs to be looking a little bit like this, that God is ultimately interested in his glory and in my good, and I trust him in my circumstances. Even when he doesn't work in the timing that I expect or in the way that I expect, he doesn't answer my prayers in the way that I had hoped, I know that he's ultimately interested in his glory and in my good. So God can do it, he will do it, but even if he doesn't, I won't lose faith in him. I won't lose my trust in him because he is faithful and he has never been unfaithful. That is what we need to consider in our own lives. Do we have that sort of bold conviction and hope? Do we have that? See, a resounding theme in Daniel that we can never forget is that these four teenagers 
received incredible visions from God, no doubt about it. But the one vision they never received was how things would turn out in their own life. Isn't that interesting to think about? Like, they didn't know that when they stood up in that cafeteria, that things would turn out the way that they did. They never knew that when they sat down to pray that God would give them a vision, and they didn't know how Nebuchadnezzar would respond when they provided that. And these three teenagers did not know that if they stood on that day, what the outcome would be. Speaking of that, what did happen? Look at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and threw, thrown into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. What's going on here? Interestingly, in scripture, fire always represents one of two things. Judgment or purification. The judgment of God, the destruction of evil, or the purification of God's people, like the removal of dross on gold. It's always one of those two things. And so the question we have to ask is, which of the two are at play in this? Well, we actually see both, right? The soldiers who uh, fill out the indictment of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, they are burnt. That's the judgment motif. But then we see these three teenagers, they are unharmed. And so what's the plain main thing? Well, let's, let's answer it this way. Uh, much ink has been spilled in trying to answer the question, who's this fourth person? Right? Is it a pre-incarnate Jesus? That'd be pretty cool. The son of the gods. Like, it sounds like it could be Jesus. But we don't know. Maybe it is. I like to think it is, but I don't know. I can't tell you that with confidence. Maybe it's an angel. But what we do know for certain, for absolute certainty, is that this story most certainly points to Jesus. Because he is the one who endured the just judgment of God. He took on the wrath of God. He is the one who was burned and so totally consumed so that not even a hair upon our head was singed and there wasn't even a smell of smoke on our bodies. And even the, the ropes that were holding us together in our bondage, they were burned off, but we were not burned. We were totally set free. All of this prefigures the work of Jesus on the cross. He is the ultimate fulfillment of this story. And Paul picks up on this theme, right? This theme of, a, of a, um, the ropes being burned away, but them not being burned. Paul says, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. That he is the one who has paid the price for our sins. So what does this mean? 
if Jesus went into the fire of judgment for you already, enduring the fire of God's wrath, then the question we have to ask is, what do you have to fear today? Knowing that God has already done that for you, what do you have to fear? Let me show you how the story ends, looking at verse 28. Verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their very lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or any language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be, here's his MO, cut into pieces, <laughs> and their houses be turned into a pile of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Look at this. Once again, the story starts with all people, all tribes, all nations bowing down before this great piece of gold, the statue of gold 90 feet high. And the end of the story is a depiction of what we see in the book of Revelation when we read this. And I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Daniel chapter 3 is ultimately fulfilled. In this story. In this story. And look, this isn't happening in Israel, right? It's not happening in Judah. It's not happening in a church. It's happening in Babylon for this little moment. Babylon is the one who is ushering in the new kingdom as they are all looking toward the throne room of God. And it is precisely through the obedience of these four teenagers that Babylon will, for just a moment, give the greatest foretaste of God's kingdom in the world. So I'm going to invite up Jason and his team um, at this moment. And as they make their way up, I just want to end this morning by reading you a story which highlights, I think, very well what these three teenagers did in this story. And how ultimately their goal was not to culturally assimilate and to bow down, but nor was it to separate themselves. There was always an honor, an honor, a humility, a dignity, because the ultimate goal of their lives is to expand God's kingdom and to usher in that kingdom and for others to join them in that mission. And so here's a reading from Philip Keller. And he is explaining to us about how eastern shepherds gather in strays who are lost in the wilderness. Listen to these words. How does an eastern shepherd gather up his stray sheep? How does he bring home the wanderers and the stragglers? He uses his own lambs and bellwethers to gather in the lost sheep. Because these pets are so fond of being near him and with him, he has to literally go out into the hills and rough country himself, taking them along and then scattering them abroad. There they graze and feed along the wild and wayward sheep. 
As evening approaches, the shepherd gently winds his way home. His lambs and bellwethers quietly follow him. And as they move along in his footsteps, hear this, they bring with them the lost and the scattered sheep. This is a precise picture drawn for us in bold colors of what our good shepherd requires of us. He does not demand that we embark on some grandiose scheme of our own design or suggest that we become embroiled in some complex organization of human ingenuity. He simply asked me to be one who will be so attached to him, so fond of him, so true to him, that in truth I shall be like his lamb. No matter where he takes me, no matter where he places me, no matter who I am alongside of in my daily living, that person will be induced to eventually follow the shepherd simply because I follow him. We love because he first loved us. We love others because he first loved us. We love at all because he first loved us. And I just long for us Christians to understand this mission, that our mission is that the kingdom of God would advance in our world today. Hope, humility, and courage. Do you wanna live like these three teenagers? Do you wanna live like these men? Then ask yourself this question, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of the inner workings of politicians, governors, leaders? Then know this, kingdoms will rise and fall, but God's kingdom will stand forever. Then what are you afraid of? Are you afraid that perhaps there will be injury or illness or dying? Then know this, even youths grow weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who put their hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up upon wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not be faint. So what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of death? Then know this, the Apostle Paul tells us to live as Christ, but to die is gain. See, most people in the world, they're looking for a God or a way for them to not have to endure the fire. And I, I can see the temptation in that. But we see through King Jesus that really what we need to pray for and what we need to be looking for is the God of gods and the Lord of kings who will not take the fire away but who will sustain you even as you are in the fire. His name is Jesus. You've been listening to the latest sermon in our current Daniel series, Thriving in Babylon. You can find resources and information about this teaching series and more information about our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time for the weekly sermon at Gateway. Gateway.